everybody, and welcome to the podcast where we're going to be talking about a newly published book entitled Populism in Sport, Leisure and Popular Culture. And we're joined today by the two editors of that book, uh, Brian Clift and Alan Tomlinson. I'll introduce them in a little bit more detail in a moment. But first of all, let me just say a little bit about the series. So my name is Louise Ryan. I'm professor at London Metropolitan University, and I'm one of the founding editors of the series Sociological Futures. This is the flagship book series of the British Sociological Association, and it's published in partnership with Routledge. The other three series editors, along with myself, are Professor Eileen Green, Professor John Horne and Dr Caroline Oliver. When we started the series about seven years ago now, one of our aims was to ensure that the BSA had a, a publishing series, an outlet, an opportunity that really connected to our studies, study groups. We have a very large number of study groups, I believe around 50 study groups associated with the BSA. And I'm delighted to say that several of the books we have published in the series have their origins in study groups, including the book that we'll be discussing today. So. If anybody who is listening to us is interested in submitting a proposal to Sociological Futures for a future book, either an edited collection or a monograph, please look us up on the BSA website and we'd be very happy to talk to you about uh, proposals. So without further ado, I'd now like to turn to the two guests today who are the editors of this new book on populism in sport, leisure and popular culture. So Brian Clift is senior lecturer at the University of Bath, and he's also director for the Centre of Qualitative Research. And the other editor, Alan Tomlinson, is professor of leisure studies at the University of Brighton and a former founder convener of the leisure and sport study groups. Alan won't mind me saying that he's a veteran of the BSA and has been involved for uh, over six decades uh, throughout uh, from the 1970s, I believe, when he attended his first BSA conference. So it's wonderful to have that span of interest and commitment to the British Sociological Association. So I'd like to begin by asking Alan about uh, the book and particularly about the concept of populism. As uh, a few scholars have noted, populism has become a commonly if not indeed overused term, both in the media and indeed in academic scholarship. And as a result, populism has kind of lost, I suppose, some of its meaning or potential significance. So what do we mean by, pop uh, by populism? How is that understood, particularly in relation to this book, focusing on sport and leisure? So, Alan, over to you. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks very much, Louise. Yeah, the, the, the question about populism is not uh, necessarily um, that it's not had a profile. The question is how that profile has worked. And you quite rightly say that it's, it's a concept that has proved like gold dust to certain kinds of journalistic writing. Um, and, and, and also in the last uh, couple of decades, uh, the profile of the prominent populists who we might look after. Uh, later in the, in the conversation, uh, those profiles have expanded. They've expanded a, across the, glo the globe. 
but of course, the, the, the actual conceptual origins of the term uh, lie in political science and, and, and political history. And, and, and in, in a very, very precise way, it, it started to appear to me some years ago that, that this, this hadn't really moved on, apart from some vital theoretical interventions about left populism and, and, and pop, left populism and resistance, for, uh, which, draw, which um, draws, of course, on the work of Chantal Mouffe very, very strongly. But, but generally speaking, uh, however the profile was moving, it didn't seem to me to, to be moving into sociological lexicon, really. Uh, and that's one of the arguments in the book here, that, that though we are a, a bunch of writers from eight eight disciplines or interdisciplinary fields representing seven or eight uh, countries and nations, um, i.e. ones that are written about in the book or from which the authors do come, um, we, we, are, we are addressing the sociological potential of the concept of populism. And, and one of the things that drove me on this as well uh, was that over the years, I've, I've written a heck of a lot of cultural history on, on international discourses of, modern, of, of big sports organisations, the International Olympic Committee, FIFA in, in particular. And, and it's always struck me that the kind of models of idealism through which sport is justified on a national and international and collective scale border on populist rhetoric or use popularist rhetoric and border on what we might want to call um, actually um, populist discourse, which has ideological consequences. So, so the, 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 the task that I thought we needed to make during most of my work on spectacle consumption and so on was to see, is there room for, 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 for the expansion as, as well as in, in a way, uh, as well as making it more precise than the journalistic users, with the expansion of the use of the term. And, and, and um, so that's what drove me to think about having workshops. And, and Brian and I bumped into each other um, somewhere in North America. It was, I think it was, I think it was the, the week of the election of Donald Trump in Tampa, when he came to Tampa, where the conference of the North American Society, the sociology of sport was taking place. And so as he was addressing the crowds a couple of miles around the corner, we talked about this kind of confluence of, of, of interests about the term populism. And Brian had been working on Brazil and, 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 and from a political science and sociological way. So in, in a way that there was a, a sort of meeting of of minds, a meeting of, of topics, and I think a challenge uh, for, for sociology. So that's what the genesis, if you like, of the term was. Whether we can give you a very precise conceptual definition now is another question, but one of the books does do is challenge all of us in the sociological community and sport and leisure studies and related areas to, to, to begin to see whether we can talk about a particular development and conceptualization of the phenomenon of sportive populism. Yeah, that's a good point, Alan. And, and just to add to that, I think when we started writing that introduction, we, we struggled a bit with how to bring the political term into the conversation with sociology. And I think the decision we ended up taking is that we were going to work with four assumptions and um, those four assumptions that we that we outlined are that that populism is a construct that can be used across the political spectrum, right? It straddles from 
left to right-wing political positions. It articulates some sort of tension between a collectivity, um, which is usually purported to be the people and some sort of elite group. Um, third, that uh, it operates at um, the level of an effective ideology in the profiles of um, policies and political leaders. And um, lastly, that it's powerfully mobilized in symbolic practices and discourses. Um, so we set off with that. And I, I think if we had another podcast, we might revisit the depth of that. Um, but I think for the book, that's where we started the conversation, bringing it into sociology. Thank you. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book, and I have to say, I know very little about sport. And I, when I started to read the manuscript, I thought, oh, this is going to be all about sport. I'm not sure if I'm the best person qualified to, to make an assessment of the manuscript. But it, it was so engaging to read, even as a non-sport expert. And one of the things I really loved about the book was how international it was. And you've already mentioned Brazil, several chapters on Latin America, Russia. You know, it really offers a very global perspective on populism and sport. But it's interesting that quite a few chapters are actually on Trump. And Alan, you've already mentioned uh, the role of Donald Trump. Now, clearly, of course, in 2020, we had Joe Biden coming to the presidency. So reflecting on the book, but, but also perhaps addressing some wider issues, would you say that Trump has had his moment or are we going to be living with that legacy for quite a long time? So maybe I could come to you first with that, Brian. Yeah, that's a great and sad question, I think, because I think the legacy of Trump is not going anywhere. Trump may be out of office for the moment, but Trumpism is something that's around, to, that was around before Trump and is going to remain. And we're all already seeing it in the political shaping of the Conservative Party in the United States and the continued push to the right. Um, with some politicians who are blatantly anti-Semitic and racist and misogynist in different places. Um, the assault on the Supreme Court has begun. And I think there's a strong case to be made to say that the foundations of American democracy are under threat and the riots on January 6th and their denial by politicians today represents that significant shift. Um, so I don't, I don't think Trump is going anywhere. I, I think Trumpism and Trump himself are around um, for the long haul, which I think is a really sad thing. And I think we're going to see that creep into popular culture um, consistently more and more. Yeah, because I, I I think that's absolutely right, and and it's not just a matter of people getting to the say level of of, of Trump's rise to, um, and, and keeping power. It's establishing particular sets of, um, of positions that 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 can then be sustained in the background if you're no longer in power. I mean, Brian and I were discussing this a couple of days ago, and, and that, that Trump is actually. Uh, consolidating his positions at the moment, mm. the far right, and, 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 and the use of sport 
the use of a, such a high and wide profile institution of sport is something that, that, that gave him a sort of institutional base that perhaps 15, 20 years ago, we would never have assumed that he might get. Though, of course, we've got to remember that he's always been involved in, in his business practices with golf course development and, 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 joint and, and liking to associate himself with top sports people wherever possible. For him, the presidency was a gift to walk into certain institutions to legitimate his, 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 his wider population and, 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 and to put in place his own particular political um, positions and, and views and, and excesses. And, and the, the other thing that's really important about that is that Trump was, Trump was kind of legitimized as well, a particular model of presidency in, in other places and, and, and other times. Um, but Boris Johnson, for instance, the, actually is, a, is often seen as a sort of mini-Trump. And, and, and during the Olympics in, in 2012, um, he himself, it could, it could have been Trump talking, was talk, said, said, for instance, I reckon we have knocked Beijing into a cocked hat after the Olympics and with all the kind of spirit, as, the asif spirit of complete collective effervescence. It was like a Durkheimian argument, really. There was this collective effervescence that nobody could, could, could not be involved in. And then within, within a few syllables, he was adding, for the first time since the end of empire, it truly feels like that London is like, like the capital of the world. And that kind of move from, from that kind of almost kind of slapstick verbiage into a huge political claim that that itself is also it's a very, very Trumpian. So, so that was Johnson in 2012, Trump got into the political sphere, but Trump was already an influence through the television programmes, the reality television, the discourses that were appearing on popular television in this country with Alan Sugar, Lord Sugar, um, who has some very controversial background in dealings about, about the finances and the controls of the English Premier League and operated quite corruptly in the early 1990s uh, during the formative period of the establishment of the Premier League. So, so Trump was there and, the, and these sorts of models were there to, to be taken further through media and popular cultural form. Once he was in the presidency, he could do even more to legitimate things and, and, and in a way manipulate social and cultural institutions. And that just doesn't go with the loss of one presidential election. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And what one of the things that I found so interesting and informative for me in reading the book was the chapters on South America. You know, we have the kind of almost stereotypical um, dictators, if you like, who use sport to kind of galvanize popular support for themselves and, and their own political agenda, but to then have so-called democratically elected leaders doing exactly the same thing, you know, it really brings, so the book, those juxtapositions in the, in the chapters in the book really bring those kinds of threads through very, very visually and very powerfully. But I wanted to, to maybe move the discussion on to talk about racism in sport, which, of course, is now such a huge issue. It's always been a huge problem. But in recent years, we've had show racism, the red card, kick it out. We've had a lot more organized activity against uh, racism in football. And I know as we speak today, poor old Marcus Rashford 
is being eaten alive on social media over missing that um, that goal last night. So we can see that even a young lad who was a hero a few months ago can very, very quickly be vilified and how racism can be so quickly mounted on social media to, to destroy a young person in their prime. So it's it's such a pressing issue. And in the book, there are several chapters that talk about um, the really heroic and in tremendously brave work uh, of Colin Kaepernick, um, who was a character I'd vaguely heard of before I read the book. But there are at least two chapters in the book that talk about his taking the knee protest when he was really kind of an isolated figure and effectively sacked and lost his job and his career was ruined. And that was before the whole Black Lives Matter, the taking the knee became such a prominent issue in sport. And Colin was really a pioneer. And, and you know, people didn't rally to support him in quite the same way that they may do now when we've got everybody uh, from Lewis Hamilton onwards taking the knee. So maybe you could say a little bit more. And, and if I can turn to you on this, Brian, about populism and racism and almost the mobilization of racism within sport. Yeah, Kaepernick, um, Kaepernick really seems to be a turning point and um, Trump's response to him and to uh, a number of protesting black athletes, I think is captured pretty well by what Joe Feagan would frame Trump's authoritarian populism as within a white racial frame, right? And this encompasses um, a kind of broad and persistent set of racial stereotypes, prejudices, ideologies, images, interpretations, narratives, emotions, and um, a, a degree of, of racialized in inclinations to discriminate. Um, in, in a political speech um, in Alabama, Trump writes, or Trump says in response to Kaepernick, get that son of the bitch, son of a bitch off the field right now out, he's fired, he's fired, right? And this is something that I think several authors latched on to, David Andrews, Ben Carrington, Jules Boykoff, Adam Beisel, um, and Daphna Kaufman, um, all speak about the kind of Trumpian moment around um, race to, to different, with different lenses and different approaches. And they paint a really poignant picture about how Trump positions black athletes as somehow un-American in contrast to white athletes. Um, and so you see teams um, get traditional invitations to the White House after winning uh, a league. Um, Trump rejects the Philadelphia, sorry, the Philadelphia Eagles reject their invitation. Uh, that's a predominantly African-American team. The Golden State Warriors uh, weren't even offered uh, an invitation. They kind of rejected it before it came and Trump uh, kind of dismissed them. And um, in contrast for like Tom Brady and the Patriots, you know, he gets hailed as a, as a, as a white Patriot. Um, and and uh, a scholar here at University of Bath, Aurelien Mondon and uh, Aaron Winter, um, write that this kind of centralizes race as a topic of political discourse and it allows for the reassertion of a white identity as a legitimate political category um, and one that mainstreams and normalizes racism for the far right. Um, and we, we see that with Mexico too, right? Adam Beisel and David Andrews write about 
um, Trump capitalizing on the North American bid to host the World Cup at the same time that Trump, when he's campaigning, refers to Mexicans as rapists and drug dealers. So how do these, you know, contradictory things come together? And their their point is that that um, it it brings this point of tension. Um, that allows Trump to say these things within this white, white racial frame, but then score political wins around things like global multilateralism and appealing to kind of an emergent upper middle class suburban voting block that is like the soccer dad. Right. So it's, it's a confluence of all these things going on. And of course, although we're talking a lot about Trump in the book, you, know, you also talk about Putin. Um, and the Winter Olympics in Sochi, I believe. So that also gets mentioned. And, you know, we see this being played out. And, and this is the, the frightening thing about populism, that it isn't just Trump in America, but it's also Putin in Russia and it's several other leaders across Europe we see in Hungary. Um, so this is a very pervasive movement. And we can see how sport is often drawn into to that kind of, of political agenda uh, beyond America and, and Trump as well. So the book really does a good job of showing that in so many different countries and contexts. Mm. But if I can move us on to also talk about gender, which is another uh, very important theme, which relates to, to these issues as well. And in the book, there's a wonderful chapter about Lady Gaga. Um, and at the risk of going back to talk about Trump again, but her performance in the Super Bowl, and just the, the performativity and, and the kind of multi-layered nature of what Lady Gaga did while on the one hand appearing to present a very patriotic take on, on American culture was also doing something much more subversive with her performance and with some of her song choices. And the chapter really illustrates that the kind of gendering of that performance by Lady Gaga uh, who, of course, is very critical of the whole Trumpian agenda. And we saw her recently singing the same song, but perhaps very differently, at Joe Biden's inauguration. So I found that chapter on Lady Gaga was, was really incredibly engaging and beautifully written and very evocative as well. But maybe we could say a little bit more about gender and populism and sport. And, and maybe, Alan, you could tell us a, a bit more about that theme and how it gets addressed through the book. Yeah, well, we've got to recognise that, that perhaps the, the the early origins of the concept as well to concentrate on forms of leadership. And so it's historically, you've got many examples of forms of, of, of male political leaders um, representing populist themes. Uh, Rick Grunow's chapter, uh, Wither the People, has a beautiful comparison between Benito Mussolini and Donald Trump, who don't say, so I don't want to say much more about Trump, but there's the, the, the eight ways in which in a beautifully, beautifully uh, almost operatic piece of writing, it rises to some, some climax about, about certain kinds of characteristics of these two men in these different places and these different types, their patriarchy, their misogyny, their racist agendas. They're, they're essentially, though Rick doesn't use this term, they're bullying tactics. Uh, but and, and their absolute lack of respect for, say, the rule of law, their toughness, the strong man element, 
And so there is, there is still, in, in, we see this in, in the examples you were just citing, Viktor Orban from Hungary and Putin and, and the other people in the, in the male examples. Um, that isn't to say that, um, that, that, that populist leaders are solely, solely male or populist figures are solely male. And there's a really interesting chapter by Deborah Phillips on reality television in, in Britain, in the UK, as, as, well as, as well as North America, and, and, and identifying people like Michelle Dubery, who some of us might see quite regularly on Question Time, uh, spouting populist claims which are just not substantiable or not substantiated or not attempted no attempt at substantiation of classic sorts of themes about particular groups, the people's needs and so on, and a series of prejudices running through everything that she says. And so there is no simple simple separation of the populist phenomenon according to gender. There are dominant, dominant examples historically and, and more sociologically and contemporarily in, in, in terms of, of those male sorts of characteristics. More yeah, work to be done as well. We, we truly believe that, that there, there is more work to be done to, to, to explore this in, 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 in emphatically sociological uh, fashion. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we've seen with Marine Le Pen, who's probably one of the, the most famous people that we could put into this category, and, and obviously a woman who, who manages to kind of uh, bring those the gendered dimension through her very, very right-wing uh, populist political discourses as well. So clearly, yes, absolutely. It's not just something that happens with male leaders. And in terms of sport, you know, really bringing out the gendering, it's, it's not just about including women in those discussions, but also critically interrogating the ways in which masculinity and, and heteronormativity get constructed in, in those kinds of debates as well. So clearly a lot of food for thought there. And moving on to think about recent events, particularly in this country and, and in Europe more widely, around sport. We can't ignore the issue of the Super League, which hit the headlines just a couple of weeks ago. So I'm just curious to know your thoughts about the increasing role of big business and profit, uh, often linked to political agendas in sport. And, and what you see is what kind of direction are we going to go in from here? Which of you would like to answer that first? I'll have a very quick go and then Alan? have a go. Yeah, um, I'm very pleased that I didn't have time to get into full commentary when this was at its peak, as <laughs> the, the um, English Super League. Um, it was a rash assumption by the six, by, 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 the, by the particular um, metropolitan clubs. Uh, to, to a rash assumption on the part of the owners of those clubs that this was a sort of need for a, 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 of the people, of the fans. It was, it was a complete misreading. It, it shows the distance that some of them have from, from the actual phenomenon of sport. It was wonderful to see what you've already cited today, see Manchester United lose last night to a team called Villarreal, 
from a town with a population of 52,000, anonymously located a couple of miles inland between Valencia and Barcelona. Um, it, it's still got a rich owner who's a supermarket magnet in Spain, but it's a different kind of model to those clubs that were saying we are the elite. And, and in a way, what they lost touch with is the peoples. And that is the response that we saw from, from some very active for some time fans, but also from, from, from people who said, I've not done this before. Yeah, you know, we've got to say that there's something about this about that we will not accept. I mean, it went over the edge at times at Manchester and Old Trafford, but it's a phenomenon that is not going to go away now and is, is featuring very strongly, actually, in, in, in however limited the lineup of people brought together in, 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 at the moment by the government and FA to, to look at the governance of sport. We are not going to see um, the... the the, the, the influence of fans decrease. We're going to see the representation of fans of all kinds on a wider scale, more institutionalised, changing the debate about the direction of this highly commodified form. I'm sure Brian would like to comment on that too. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll just add the distinction, I think, between the German model of football in the Bundesliga and what has become the Americanized way, uh, which resembles a cartel in terms of who's at the top. So the Bundesliga model um, still stipulates that 50% plus one um, of the ownership belongs to members of the club. And the influx of capital and the commodification has been dampened in service to its members. And so the voices uh, around the decisions about what clubs do are much more anchored in uh, the fans and um, the community. That's a very stark contrast to the United States where the model of sport is, is much like a cartel where if you want a team in a league, you have to buy your way in and the league owners in that area have to agree to let you in. And so the Super League resembles this, this Americanized model where the idea of promotion and relegation disappear, that they're going to play the best of the best all the time. And the only way to get in is to buy your way in and become one of the club, right? And the Bundesliga, the three teams that were proposed to be part of this Super League didn't join, right? They rejected it outright. They were never part of the conversation, um, whereas the... Um, the American model comes as it comes into contact with that. There's a degree of resistance from um, uh, owners of a club who are more communally oriented. Um, so where that goes from here, I'm, I'm not quite sure. But I think it's a nice contradistinction between the American model, the, the, um, the German model, and then the rejection of the Super League once it's released by um, supporters of, of so many teams. And I think all but three clubs have, have now kind of have said they won't be involved. And, and that's a result of that backlash and that communal orientation that I think a lot of fans want. One of the positive outgrowths we've seen in, in sport as a response to kind of Trump and the racism happening is um, protest. And people like Serena Williams, people like Naomi Osaka, uh, Lewis Hamilton, Marcus Rashford, 
uh, LeBron James and, and several others are using sport as a platform to respond to contemporary inequalities. And it's been embraced by a number of leagues and by a number of clothing and apparel manufacturers. And I know there's a debate about the commodification of that. Um, but, I, but I think that's, that's a positive to see people like Marcus Rashford um, advocating for child hunger and poverty in quite a productive way to the extent that he can challenge the political elite. Um, and, and I think that's, sadly, that is a, a response to quite negative conditions, but it's a great thing to see um, contemporary sports stars advocating for contemporary inequalities at the most highly mediated levels. Yeah, I have to say for sort of um, disinterested, neutral observers like myself, it, it was really a, a sociological moment mm. when you had the rapid mobilization of very, very vocal protest at local and national and international level to defeat something that almost looked like a fait accompli at one point. So, you yeah. know, still reeling from the shock that was Brexit, I'm, um, I'm given a little bit of hope that sometimes these decisions can be turned around um, if you can mobilize enough people to, to see through the problems associated with it. I had to get my Brexit bit in there. It hasn't gone away. <laughs> so I would like to thank very, very much um, the two editors of the book, uh, Brian Clift and Alan Tomlinson. The book again is entitled Populism in Sport, Leisure and Popular Culture. I would just like to say as somebody who is not an expert in sport, I thoroughly enjoyed the book and learned a huge amount from reading it. Anybody interested in sociological analysis, political science, studies of leisure, culture, politics, will find so much of value in this book. So I thoroughly recommend it. So on behalf of the series editors for Sociological Futures, I'd like to thank you all very much for listening to the podcast today.